AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. Now, very pleased to be joined by my good friend, Sarah Kustok of Yes Network and NBA Flashback Pod and like 17 other things. Hardest working woman in the NBA. Sarah, good morning. How are you? I'm amazing, Howard, now that I'm talking to you. I'm just trying uh, to keep up with you. I, nah, that's, that's all it's about. You, you are too kind, as always. Uh, so in about 30 minutes, you and I will be joined by Gary Pomerantz, author of Wilt 1962, to talk about Wilt's 100-point game, the anniversary, uh, the podcast, uh, NBA Flashback Pod that you did with Gary and others. Um, but until Gary joins us, let's talk a little current NBA and your team, the Nets. We are recording this uh, on Wednesday, so it's before they go to Philly. We don't know what that scene's going to be like yet. Uh, by the time people listen to this, you will know. Uh, but in the meantime... This is where things stand now with the Nets, Sarah. They're 33 and 33, eighth in the East. Uh, in the games Kyrie Irving has played, they're 5 and 11. And in the games that they've played since Kyrie rejoined them on a part time basis, they're 10 and 21. 
By the time this podcast publishes, they will have 15 games left in the season. Hard to believe. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons have yet to play a game together. Kyrie's still ineligible for home games. Is this team still a contender? Because I'm struggling with that concept. <laughs> it's layered, Howard. I mean, it truly is. You went through it. But I, I think for those of us who watch this team on a day-in, day-out basis, there has been one turn after another that's you know been a challenge for this group and figure out how to gain continuity and some consistency and get used to one another. And it certainly has not been easy. What I will say is, Things have felt different in the past week or so since Kevin Durant has returned. He is a player that entirely changes the complexion and the dynamic of this group. And so I think his injury and him being out, uh, I believe it was 21 games, but for such a significant amount of time, certainly skewed what this team was doing in terms of, of finding some level of consistency. The Kyrie Irving factor and his eligibility continues to, I, I wish I could give you a clean explanation of things. I, I wish this season, I didn't spend so much time um, listening to, uh, to mandates and policies or talking about them and trying to cover them. I think there is still an optimism that at some point, and I know the runway is getting shorter, but at some point he will be eligible for home games. That remains to be seen. Um, but overall, I think health is is the one major factor in concern. That obviously includes Kevin Durant now being back. That obviously is the question mark on the timeline of Ben Simmons. As far as we know, the hope for him, as we learned this week, was that by the end of the week, he'll be participating in team activities. And I think that will then be the stepping point for him to get back to five on five action and hopefully return to the court soon. But I think for all of those reasons, um, I believe that they think they, I, I should say, I think they still believe that they are a title contender. That is still the goal that has not changed, but I do think they have a, a very great understanding of the short time frame that they need to get themselves together and get to that point. And right now it is all about stacking up wins because, you know, getting in the playoffs is the first step to actually being able to contend for a title. And they, they're very aware of the circumstances they're in. And they may have to get there through the play-in. And I think any team that's facing them in a play-in, if they've got Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons, and Kyrie Irving, is going to feel like yeah, we're, we're probably screwed playing this Nets team in a play-in that that they that their their talent suggests they should not uh, be in. Um, and under ordinary circumstances, Sarah, if, if you said a team that had a disjointed season, but they've got these three elite players and they'll be healthy and playing together at the end, I'd say, you know what? They could make that run from play-in to conference finals or maybe the finals or something. The problem in this case is even Durant and Kyrie Irving haven't played that many games together this season, and Ben Simmons hasn't played with them at all. And so by the time you have all three of them on the court, the runway is, what, maybe 10 games at that point? A dozen games or something? That's not a lot of time. Like, we talk about chemistry all the time, so it has to matter on some level, right? Like, is 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 that enough time for these three players plus that group of role players to all adjust? Meanwhile, they're also still flip-flopping lineups every time they switch from home to road because of Kyrie. Howard, I feel like I, I'm I'm having flashbacks, having deja vu. All <laughs> all I, I spoke to people about at the end of last season was the same circumstance with, with James Harden, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving because of injuries. You know, so um those are questions that I think are hard to give definitive answers to until you see them on the floor. What I will say is that both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving throughout the course of their career, and I think just their relationship and their connection and how they play on the floor have a, enough uh, comfortability 
to be able to make those adjustments. Uh, Ben Simmons, the expectation of the role he will fill, how he will fit in, what will be needed of him, I think there gives a optimism for a smooth uh, adjustment of, of how he will insert himself into the rotation, the lineup, uh, in just how that will play out to me, a lot of it. And these are the things I said last year, it's the others it's, you know, I, I look at an individual who came over like Seth Curry, who, when Durant was out and Kyrie wasn't playing and he was relied upon to play, make to score, to do Patty Mills, another one, for example, the responsibility of their roles and usage and what is required of them when some individuals are in the lineup as opposed to when others, to me, those are the guys that have a lot of the adjustments. Steve Nash and this coaching staff, like they have an option of big, they have an option of versatility. You know, what more do you want that optionality with your lineup to play big, to play small? Do we want Kevin or Ben at the five? Do we want to go big? You know, right now, LaMarcus Aldridge is injured, but you look at Andre Drummond, LaMarcus Aldridge, Nicholas Claxton, and you have an option of different bigs or how you can play. To me, that's that's a lot of the adjustment of what lineups do we close with? What combinations work best together? And so I think players sometimes can, when, when they're on the floor, they figure that out. But trying to optimize who you have and what the lineup looks like when you then do have depth and you do have different combinations you can go with, to me, that becomes uh, one of the bigger challenges to try and problem solve. If you had to guess, and this is a bit of curiosity for me since the moment they made this deal, when everybody's healthy, when everyone's playing, what position is Ben Simmons playing on a team with Kyrie and Kevin Durant? And you can't say the position is be Ben Simmons. I, I was going to go with, can we just go with positionless basketball? Uh, you know, I, I see Ben is someone who Kyrie plays off the ball so well. Yeah. And I mean, it, talking about the 50 point game that he's coming off of, but his scoring ability, I think obviously it, he can play and play, make and create and you initiate offense through him. But I also think he's excellent off the ball. I think Ben, you know, brings that level. I think the excitement for him is how he can push tempo, push pace, run the offense, organize thing. But I also think you do like he can be utilizing that dunker spot. You can utilize him in the four or five position. Um, and so putting him in different spots where what we're watching, for example, Bruce Brown do, who has been excellent. Um, that's areas that Ben Simmons, you have him leaking into the into the paint in the lane, finding some of those short rolls and mid-range um, opportunities and getting to the basket and getting around the basket. Those are the things that I would envision with him and more than anything that the Nets desperately need. I mean, his ability to guard one through five, one through four, put him on who, whoever you're facing, you know, the best player. We see this in a lot of different situations, whether it was a Celtics game the other day, toss on Tatum, you know, toss them on Harden when they're playing Philly, you name it. Like those are the type of situations where I think Ben is going to be relied upon most when he is healthy. And so that's the aspect of when it's a lineup, it's less about where you're fitting in him in to me. It's more about, okay, who else do you want on the floor? Do you need more shooting? Do you need more size? And that's kind of how you adjust the lineup. And, and I could see that might, especially because they're just now, going to, you know, they have this very short runway, as we talked about, to experiment and figure out the best lineups. And so I don't know that there is an ideal there, but put yourself in Steve Nash's 
shoes for a minute, if not necessarily in Steve Nash's head, because I, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to try to mind read Steve Nash. I would love Nash to be given, in Steve Nash's head. I would not like to be in his it's, shoes. It's, <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough call because in his head, it's, it's just spinning right now uh, and has been for the oh, entire season. Bril- probably. That basketball brilliance, <laughs> I, I, w- I would love to get a crack at. That fair. That's a good point. Um, who would your closing five be? Obviously, you've got the three stars. Who are the other two? Hmm. Now you got a tough question for me. I, I think it's a, a, to me, it entirely depends on the matchup, hmm. right? You, you know, you want Kyrie, Kevin, Ben on the floor. And, and I would say that cause you want Ben to be able to defend who, whoever you have, um, you know, are you going with, that's where are you going with shooting with Seth Curry? Do you use Andre? Do you need a big is, is Drummond on the floor? Um, these are the aspects you think about with free throw shooting, uh, if Lamarcus Aldridge is healthy, is he the other one that that you're looking at? Do you need Goran Dragic with another, you know, another level of of um, just a veteran calming presence? Bruce Brown is someone who has been excellent closing things out. Um, who am I forgetting? Yeah. So, but but to me, it, it's it would be it's it obviously starts with with Kyrie and with Kevin and with Ben, and then from there, I think you just start to really figure out what you're up against, what you need. And are you more concerned about the offensive side of things or is it a more defensive minded approach? And so I think, again, to me, that circles back to when we talk about the consistency or the timing or getting used to one another. um, Those are the questions to me that become the most challenging when you have not had a lot of experience or a lot of time together or a season to kind of see how things play out and to see how things work. That's the thing, too, especially in in this era where coaching staffs uh, have access to so much data. We all have access to a lot of data ourselves, even as viewers, but the coaching staffs have a lot of of data about lineup combinations and who's functioning well together, and they just won't have that much of a, a data set to go on by the time they get to the playoffs to figure out, oh, we're best off having, you know, Seth Curry out there with with our big three, along with you know Claxton, or along with Aldridge at center, or Drummond, who like whoever it may be. And the fact is, like all of their centers, they're they're plausible centers. They're all very different in what they're going to bring to the table. Um, even the guard core, like it, it's there's just the experimentation and how quickly they got to kind of find their comfort zone with who they they feel most uh, confident relying on down the stretch is going to be tough, given how few games um i'm curious if you've had much time around ben simmons i mean i don't know where things will stand with uh, just covid and everything else right now and how often you guys are practicing shoot arounds if you're getting a chance to chit chat with guys like we would in normal times uh we are in kind of normal ish times we're getting closer to normal uh have you been around ben simmons much um any sense of of his comfort level how he's feeling what the adjustment is like I, I haven't had any conversations with him personally. Um, however, just being around the team, being at shoot-arounds, uh, haven't had a lot of practices back in Brooklyn, as you know, with game schedules, more of it's shoot-arounds. Yeah. Uh, but you can see it and you could feel, whether it's walking around or on the plane or you watch him on the sidelines or just, it, there does appear to be a great level of comfort. There does appear, watching him on the bench with his teammates and just um, – the enthusiasm he has, the interactions that you see, and, and that's what you hope for him. And I know a lot of people have a lot of different opinions and probably opinions that they don't have enough information about, you know, about an individual. And you, you ask me about, you know, being in Steve Nash's shoes. No, no one's in his shoes and no one has experienced exactly how he feels or what he's been through. And so 
at this juncture to me, it's just an evaluation of, okay, when he's healthy and on the floor, what, what does he bring to the table for this group? And you hope for him, um, if this is the fresh start that he needed, that he has that opportunity and to see how a different group of individuals and players and fit and all of those things uh, organizationally may help him to be at his best and maximize his talents and his strengths. And so, um, so yeah, so that's yet to be seen, but I, I have no personal, I have not had other than a, a wave and a hello and a good to see you. Welcome to Brooklyn. Um, have not had much interaction. Hopefully that will, will happen as, as the days and the weeks progress, but, um, but no, but I think overall just the observations of his, happiness to be around this group and on the bench and, and with this team is something that that has stood out witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 join us march 20th live from the edge at hudson yards in new york city Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Every single piece of what's happening with the Nets right now is basically unprecedented, Sarah. Like, think about this. Like... (laughs) Okay, stars have been traded midseason before, right? Okay, getting a Ben Simmons midseason. Okay, that happens every every few years or every every five or ten years, maybe. Like superstars of that of that caliber, uh, all NBA types, don't get traded midseason that often. So incorporating a guy, uh, there's already that part, right? But not after he's sat out the first however many games it's now been, sixty games of the season, um, and not after the ugly exit. Like you you compile one thing after the other after the other, and then throw in. Durant having been out, then throw in Kyrie Irving's vaccination status and how it's affected his eligibility for home games. Like, every, this is so complicated and so unprecedented on every level. I don't even know what to expect next from the, your team, uh, but... <laughs> it's wild. Howard, it's, it's wild. It's like nothing we've ever seen. Um, and Yeah, and, and I will just... No, I just... I, I think the crazy part of it is, is I, I joked earlier, but it felt like that last year. I mean, you think about... The COVID year and, and Kevin Durant with being in and out of the lineup with health and safety protocols and then some injuries and then the Harden injury and Kyrie Irving. And, um, you know, there was so many things last season that it felt like you were constantly waiting for this theoretical group to get together and see what they were going to become. And then this year, it's kind of felt like much of the same thing. Uh, but for a lot of different reasons and a lot of reasons that if you would have told me this circumstance three, four, five years ago, I would have told you you were making up, making up a lie. So... <laughs> It's it's nuts. All right, so let's take the Nets out of the equation. Off, just take them off the board for a moment. Um, I don't know what they're going to look like 
when the playoffs start. I don't know what they're going to look like at the end of the first round. I, I just, I, it's too hard to even guess. Um, but we can see a pecking order in the East right now. Let's take the Nets off the board for a minute. Who do you think's coming out of the East if it's not the Nets making some sort of miracle run from the play-in? You're you're making me have to uh, have tough decisions, so I may not just go with one. <laughs> but what I will say is, I well, one let's start start with the fact of I have been really impressed with how Philadelphia looks, and that goes without saying. But I had a front row seat to watch James Harden when he came over from Houston to Brooklyn, and there was few players that I was as impressed with when you have watched them throughout the course of their career. You look at their numbers but you're not seeing them on a day in day out basis from when he came over and just being wowed by his basketball intelligence, his savviness and his ability to figure out what other teammates need to elevate their games. And so what we've seen early on, and I know it's a small sample size, but matching him with Joel, who had already been playing at an MVP caliber pace with Tyree Maxey, Tyrese Maxey looks like, and then Harden's ability to orchestrate so much with others. Uh, they clearly, to me, are a, a really dangerous team. And I know they all have their track record of, of what's happened in the postseason. But, you know, I, I think absolutely Philly becomes a contender. Miami, to me, is is so dangerous. And, you know, not only their championship pedigree, um, but you start with Eric Spolstra and then the rest of that group. And you assume that they're healthy and how they've been playing this entire season being without important key pieces and then everyone else um, having the experience and having the role play that's now added this layer of depth uh, that, you know, they're, they're a team that I would absolutely toss in there. Milwaukee, I know they've had their share of different ups and downs and in just how they've been playing the consistency as of late, but them coming off of winning the title, Giannis, you start with what Middleton has looked like, you know, for all those reasons, um, you know, I did, to me, they're absolutely a team that you're 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 scared of, or you look at and you think, okay, they're a team that can come out. And then after that, um, you know, whether it's how Boston's been playing, you know, I know there's question marks around them, but having just seen them recently, like between looking at what Tatum looks like, Jalen Brown, and just the athleticism across the board, their defense. I don't know how that translates into the postseason. And now I'm going through Howard. I know every team in the Eastern Conference, so I'm avoiding giving you a <laughs> real answer. But those like are Chicago, the main but, ones. I, but you know, I think, Chicago. Like, yeah. I don't know if Chicago's really a contender. Obviously, we've seen what. But to me, I would I would immediately point to, you know, to Miami, to Philly, and to Milwaukee. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I'd I'd have Boston right below them. But um, but Philadelphia is a team that I think, you know, as you see them more, as you watch how they continue to come to bed together, but their early returns look really good. And then Milwaukee, I would never count them out. And in Miami, to me, is just a, a always a dangerous team. The Heat is the team that I think everybody is still kind of sleeping on. Like, even as they're sitting there in first place in the East, um, there's, there's just not the same kind of like overall star power. Like Jimmy Butler's a star. Kyle Lowry's a multiple time all-star and all that. Bam Adebayo's a young star. They don't, it's not the same flash that a Kevin Durant or a Giannis or Embiid and Hart. Like, I feel like this, it's that general kind of like, oh, we know they're good. We know we respect them. We know they're tough. But, and I, I feel like the Heat are just kind of weirdly laying in the weeds for a team that's in first place in the East. Yeah, to, to me too, because some of it just relies so heavily upon what they're getting out of some of the others. And a lot of that in terms of three point shooting. So you look at whether it's a Tyler hero, 
Duncan Robinson, who his numbers have been a little bit down, or I should say his efficiency has been down from what you expect from him. Max Struess, I'm going to have a shout out to my DePaul family. Um, all the love and pride for a fellow Blue Demon, uh, you know, but just a, a different individuals that you've maybe not seen them have quite as much time in the postseason. But when they're when their three-point shooting is on, because I think with Miami, it always circles back to, are they going to have enough scoring potency when needed against some of these teams? Um, And Butler too. I mean, he's someone, obviously everyone has all the respect in the world for, but he can impact a game without necessarily having big numbers. And you look at the playoffs or the postseason and you wonder, okay, can you win a four game series against some of these powerhouses that have a lot of really big time offensive weapons? I'm the biggest fan of Bam Adebayo. I mean, he, since he came into this league and what he's come, you know, turned into and how he continues to flourish, I think is just incredible. But, um, but I think you're right about when you go into a series so often you look at it as, okay, who, who's the best player in this series. And if you have the best player at the series then more often than not, you have the best chance to come out of it. So Milwaukee's got Giannis and Philadelphia's <laughs> got Embiid and, and beat Harden and Brooklyn has Kevin, Kevin Kyrie, you know? So I think that's where some of the question marks come in. But I don't know. Miami, they are. There's a toughness to them. And Eric Spolstra is, is just a brilliant basketball mind that, you know, you don't want to be looking across uh, across the sidelines that often. Never sleep on the heat. All right. A couple, uh, couple minutes before Gary Pomerantz uh, jumps in to join us and talk a little Wilt Chamberlain. So uh, if I'm going to give you the, the, the tough questions, put you on the spot, I, I'll throw one more at you. Maddox and I already debated it earlier in the week. Who is your MVP as of right now? Oh, <laughs> You can't stall out for four minutes until Pomerantz jumps on and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm we ready ran to, out of time. I'm ready to. No, <laughs> um, you, I, I will say two things. I, I have not deep dove, dive, dove into the numbers enough uh, to necessarily have a great look at this. I would probably, man, I would probably err towards, I, I don't know, I would probably err towards Jokic. I would probably err towards Jokic. Uh, watching what he'd done, watching what he'd done with that group with so many players missing and pieces missing. Um, I think he's someone who you talk about sleeping on players. I don't know if it's because he won last year. I don't know if it's just because we have not been paying as much attention to Denver. But I think he, he to me, would have a slight edge um, over Embiid. But you look at, I mean, there has been such extraordinary performances across the board and a lot of players. And I think this has changed, you know, as it does always in ebbs and flows throughout the course of the regular season. And so I think there's still enough time left that our, our minds could be shifted a little, especially given how teams finish. What's it, wh- who do you have? What was your, who am I so on the Man- side of you or Maddox? Man- Maddox is leaning Jokic. I like you. Uh, I'm leaning Embiid. Um, but I think it's I think Embiid, Giannis, and Jokic are all in this, and I think the cases for them, Embiid and Giannis have a very similar case statistically and team record wise and all that right. stuff. Jokic, uh, his his stats and especially his advanced stats are just off the friggin' charts. It's it's insane, um, and I think Jokic, you know, there's there's the one version of this, which is usually the version I buy into, which is that I tend to think that based on history, the MVP should come from one of the contenders, a clear contender. And if you're not a contender, right. and that's not a knock on the player, right? It's it. We think of it as an individual award, but it's an individual award that historically has been awarded to somebody who's on an elite team because we have kind of collectively decided over history that the MVP, the stats only matter if you're on a team that could do something. 
And so it's not Jokic's fault that Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. have been out all season, but it's more about what the MVP represents. It's not just an individual award. If it were, we could just come up with a statistical statistical formula, use one of the all-in-one stats, and then just crown that guy every year. That's no fun. Um, But the inverse of that is Jokic could very much be boosted by the context or what some people call the narrative, right? He's missing those guys, and they're still in the hunt. They're still having a very respectable season. They still might even get to 50 wins, which, again, historical marker, MVPs all, all but Russell Westbrook in the last like 35 years, 38 years have got been on 50 win plus teams. Um, the Nuggets are kind of on the border right now. I think they're on pace for like 49. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think it's going to be really tough because of that. And that ballot is not due. It won't even be in our hands for several weeks still. So do we'll you, see how it sorts out. How do, how do you think it factors in, and not that it should, but how do you think it factors into the mind of voters that Jokic did win last year? I don't think it necessarily does, Sarah. We say that, and every time we say that, you get Giannis going back-to-back or Steph going back-to-back. Do you think that you altered know? Giannis going back-to-back-to-back? It may have had an impact. Maybe it was not a back-to-back, but him in the the uh, the historical context it would put him yeah. in when that third. I, I felt like that was me. I I do not have a vote, and I felt like to me that was very that that felt like the historical context of what it would mean for Giannis to win three in a row was something that filtered into the mind of voters. I think the other and thing maybe that comes- not maybe not, but I, I didn't know yeah. if that factors in for some knowing Jokic won last season in swaying one way or another in how that um, how that kind of uh, makes someone feel. Yeah, no, it did not affect my vote. Um, I couldn't tell you. I can't mind read the rest of the voters. Um, I think that maybe it's a factor, and I also think that once you've won MVP with like some spectacular season, a breakthrough tiny kind of year and your team broke through also, which was Jokic's version of events last year. Um, you can't do it again, right? You can't have the same freshness of it or breakthrough. And now you're being held to a standard of, can you match your own stats even? And if Giannis was down even a little bit, I can't remember exactly what it was relative to his prior two seasons, that could come into play too. And so is that is that punishing a guy for already winning it twice in a row and saying it's hard to do three? Or is that simply the um, is that simply just the, the natural order of things that like sometimes you, you you the standard gets so high that it's hard to match even your own standard. That's that happened to Shaq back in the day, uh, and he only won one MVP ever, and it's because I think we were holding him to a standard of Shaq at the absolute Shaqiest, which is. <laughs> a, a tough standard uh, to match. Okay, enough with the present. Let's go to the past. Let's talk Wilt and 100 points in 1962. We will be back in just a moment with Sarah Kustak and Gary Pomerantz, author of Wilt 1962. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. 
Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. We are back. Sarah Kustok still with us, and now pleased to be joined as well by the author of Wilt 1962, along with many other books, Gary Pomerantz. Gary, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Sarah. Good to be with you both. Great to have you. Uh, Great to have you both here. So you guys collaborated recently on the NBA Flashback podcast episode about Wilt's 100-point game. Sarah, you hosted it. Gary, you provided quite a bit of of, uh, insight and context historically. I know you interviewed a couple hundred people for your book about that season and that game. Um, People, go listen to that podcast. Like, even if you have to stop this one and then come back, because I don't want to, I don't, there's a, so much there. There's so much great information and quotes from people and Wilt's voice himself, because Sarah, you guys were able to draw on the NBA's archives. And so there's a phenomenal amount of information and perspective on that podcast. So people listen to that. We won't cover all of it here, but the basics, I think most people know that the game was not televised when Wilt scored a hundred. There were no New York reporters there, very few, uh, very little media, period, anyway. And so, Gary, it's always had this mystique about it because all we have is the famous photo of Wilt with the, the 100 uh, in his hands, the, the little handmade sign. Is this part of why we view this as such mystique? Is it just the round number of 100? Is it just that nobody has ever and probably will ever equal it? Or is it partially just because, yeah, we can't see it. We can't. There's there's nothing for us in the modern uh, day to go on. Is the mystique part of it, the, the lack of information part of it? Well, you know, it's interesting, Howard. Um, when Kobe scored his 81 points against Toronto in 2006, about 15 minutes after that game ended, you could go online and buy a DVD of it. Um, so technology has a lot to do with the way we view Wilt's 100. And it's the lack of technology from 1962 that launched this game into sports mythology. We remember it because it's 100 and all that 100 represents in in our society, in our our culture. You know, a perfect score on a test or a century. If Wilt had scored 98 or 102, we might not remember it as much. And it's interesting to note that he was called for defensive goaltending three times in that game. So his teammates (laughs) said he really scored 106. but it's also remembered because it was Wilt. I mean, what a name, Wilt Chamberlain. You know, uh, you could almost imagine Babe Ruth having been a fictional character and so too with Wilt. I mean, at that time, Howard, he was not the old muscled up Wilt playing for the Lakers in the yellow headband. He was the early uh, edition of Wilt, 25 years old, seven foot one, 260 pounds. He was running in transition. People think he scored on 50 dunks that game. He didn't. Wide array of shots. Okay, I wanted to ask you that, so let's just jump into that. So the box score tells us he took 63 shots and made 36 <laughs> of them 
And 28 for 32 from the foul line, which was unusual for him because he was a 50% lifetime free throw shooter. Um, Of those 36 field goals that he made, do we have any sense of where they came from? How many were layups and dunks? How many might have been a little turnaround jumper? Do we have any sense of the breakdown given, again, how little uh, data there was at the time? All we have of the breakdown is the stat sheet, quarter by quarter. And... um, you know, we have WCAU radio in Philadelphia, Bill Campbell's call of only the fourth quarter, right? So um, that's not a lot, but we can extrapolate a lot from uh, Wilt's performance in the fourth quarter by the way Campbell is describing his shots. You know, he's scoring in transition, he's scoring on putbacks, he's scoring on his favorite shot, you know, the fall away bank from the offensive left side. Scoring on free throws. I mean, if there's any miracle of Hershey, that's it. Will 28 of 32 from the line shooting underhanded, right? His knees flaring out. I mean, he looked ridiculous. There were several players on the team that year shooting free throws underhanded. Guy Rogers, Paul Arizon, Wilt. Um, and, uh, and, you know, of course, he scores on the dipper dunk, as they called it. He was the big dipper with 46 seconds to play. And uh, that was a dunk. Sarah, we heard from a lot of people on the NBA Flashback podcast that you did on on this event, including some modern players. Do today's NBA players uh, view this with the same kind of just awe and uh, that, that, that the rest of us do? Do they view it as something that any of them aspire to, that they think is attainable? How do, how do they view Wilt? I think, yeah, I I think there is always this mystique and awe-inspiring air that Wilt holds. And, you know, and Gary can can go through the stories even more of just the concept of of you talking about the fact that there's not a lot of footage and a lot of players have not seen him play. We haven't seen him play. What I love most, uh, you know, when listening to Gary with the podcast was learning and hearing about his game because so often we think of his sheer size and his strength of it being a lot of dunks or uh, of a more traditional post play and so to hear about the different shots and how he was able to score and just the the wide array of his talents and potency on that end I think is something that all NBA players um, have such a great amount of respect for and so in talking to these players uh, they all had their different takes on whether they thought 100 would be reached again most said no Um, Some gave more deep dive answers just into the concept of there may be players that have that type of skill or talent tossing out names like Kevin Durant or Devin Booker. However, saying that if a game at that point, uh, a player like that would have those type of numbers that maybe the game would not be at hand. So he wouldn't still be playing, you know, for four quarters and, and reaching that point. But overall, I do think just the concept of what that means, that number. And, and I think a lot think wouldn't, I think D'Angelo Russell was the one player who said, well, maybe if they change the three point line to a four point line, that would change. <laughs> and so to think about Wilt doing this without three pointers, you yeah. know, all of those things wrapped in, I think is just really, really special. And it circles back to that iconic photo of the 100, him holding that piece of paper with 100. That's something, you know, not just NBA players, but anyone who is a, casual fan of basketball recognizes that as being something that they think about when they think about Will. I feel like at least today we have a little bit of a love-hate relationship as fans and media with some of these gaudy individual achievements, right? Like 
Devin Booker going for 70 did not go over well necessarily in real time, uh, but we look at it as still an amazing achievement in his young career when he did it a few years back. Kobe's 81. I think there were definitely varying viewpoints because there's a self-indulgence that has to go with it just to get it. Gary, did did Wilt, at the time, Did how did Wilt feel about it? How did others, whether it was his teammates, his teammates obviously kept feeding him, we know that, uh, but was it viewed around the league at the time as something that was amazing and awesome and we should all appreciate, or was this a little bit of like, eh, you know, uh, how, you know, how selfish do you have to be to go take 60-something shots and score 100 points? Well, self-indulgent is the short answer, uh, how Wilt felt. Mm-hmm. In, in the locker room after that game, he's looking at the scorebook and Al Adels related this story to me, his teammate, Wilt shaking his head and said, big fellow, what's, what's the matter? You just scored a hundred points. And he said, I can't believe I took 63 shots. <laughs> you know, yeah, big fellow, but you made 36 of them. And, you know, again, technology, we look at that, that sheet of paper, that photograph of Wilt holding up the, the piece of paper on which the publicist Harvey Pollock had written one zero zero looked like with a Sharpie, but Sharpies didn't exist. I don't think <laughs> so. He had a, he had a, a thick pen and Wilt it, is holding it is he's sitting on a solitary bench in an old hockey locker room. His knees are in his chest. He's smiling. He's got his good luck rubber band on his, at his wrist. And I think it's the greatest basketball photo ever taken. And it's not even taken on the court, <laughs> you know, for what it, what it's about, what it symbolizes. Um, Wilt, you know, at, at that crowning achievement, at that moment, you know, it's almost, you know, almost, you think it was a Matthew Brady photo from back during the Civil War days. It's so old and it's black and white, but um, make no mistake, this game carried symbolism. You know, people today, young people, you look at it as a carnival act, you know, see the Big Dipper score 100 in a chocolate town arena, half empty. And that's true, it did happen, but nothing happens in a vacuum. And we have to remember, this is March, 1962. John Glenn has just orbited the earth 10 days before, and we are in the heart of Dr. King's black freedom struggle, the modern civil rights movement. And so this this 100 point thunderbolt symbolically blows apart the quota that the owners had limiting opportunities for black players initially to one or two per team. And at this point, three or four, the Philadelphia Warriors had three black players at that time, Guy Rogers, Will Chamberlain and Al Adels. And, and Wilt's statement that whole season when he averaged 50 points a game against the best white players in this country did the same thing. Symbolically, it said this league will not be a white man's enclave anymore. It's fascinating because I don't think any of us consider that aspect of it. It's, we don't think of this as like a, a moment in the civil rights movement or even within the, the smaller world of the sports civil rights movement. Um, that it has that kind of impact uh, is is really fascinating. Uh, I'm sure there's much more about that as well in, in your book, Gary. Well, there is. There is. And I'm in love with history. You know, I, I recently, more recently, did a book on Bob Cousy and Bill Russell and Cousy's uh, racial regrets that as the captain of the Celtics, the white captain from 1957 to 63 as, as teammates with Russell, he didn't stand up and publicly publicly defend Russell against the racism he was facing in Boston and around the league. Um, nothing happens in a vacuum, Howard, and this didn't happen in a vacuum either. This is not to say that Wilt was a civil rights activist. 
Bill Russell was a civil rights activist. He was leading marches, uh, civil rights marches to Boston Common. He was making statements about the quota. He was out front for sure. Wilt would later call himself the world's tallest Republican. But what he did by aggressively and unapologetically and flagrantly being the dipper was make a statement. I will not be hemmed in. I will not be diminished by prejudice, by racism. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Turning back to the basketball for a moment here, and the just the uh, the achievement that night. Like Nobody goes into a game, I don't think, saying I'm going to score 50 or score 80 or score 100. Like These things happen organically to an extent, but there's always some point in the game when a great player sees that something is in reach and says, might as well go for it. Do we know when in the course of that game Wilt realized there was something historical and special and incredible within his grasp? And was he at some point consciously going for it? Well, as long as we're going to enter the time machine, we go back to Hershey Arena and there, there's not a big board above the court where you look up and says, big fella, number 13, you know, 77 points, how many fouls and so forth. No, they, they were lucky they had any scoreboard. It was a little metallic uh, scoreboard used for hockey. The Hershey Bears hockey team played there. But if he couldn't see the possibility of making history, Wilt heard it with about seven and a half minutes to left, left in the game. The game's a blowout, and, and the Knicks are a last-place bad team. The game has no meaning in the standings. But Wilt has been putting up these comic book hero numbers all season. He scored more than 50 points in the game 43 times. 43 times that season. And so um, Harvey Pollack slides a sheet of paper over to Dave Zinkoff. The mighty Zink, the greatest PA announcer in the history of Philadelphia. And Zinkoff says, ladies and gentlemen, Wilt Chamberlain has just created a new scoring record. He now has 79 points. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, everything intensified. Seven and a half minutes to go, 79. All right, that's a lot of points away from 100, right? He's still 21 short of it. 
but everything intensifies, including the Warriors, Wilt's Philadelphia Warriors, his teammates' curiosity. Can the big guy actually do this tonight? And they decide they're going to go along with it. And, and people don't think much about that. But for someone to score 100 points or even Kobe's 81 or Devin Booker's 70, the teammates have to be willing accomplices. They have to give up their shots. They have to subvert their ego to the larger quest, right? For the New York Knicks, it's dread. It is deep dread, the kind of dread where they're thinking, if this guy scores 100, we're going to be remembered throughout eternity <laughs> and not in a good way. So then it becomes a ridiculous game of, of the Knicks suddenly running weaves and taking their time, taking the ball up the court and the Warriors trying to get the ball back to Wilt committing fouls to stop the clock. Paul Arizon told me in an interview for this book, he said, you know, if you'd walked into the arena in the fourth quarter at that point, seven minutes to go, six minutes to go, and you saw what was happening, you would have thought the Knicks were ahead. But this was an altogether different thing. So there is definitely an intentionality by the time you're getting down to the last half of the of the fourth quarter. Um, in terms of him then being able to to take this thing home, right? And that the Knicks just cannot stop him from getting there. They obviously don't want this infamy to 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 live with for the rest of their careers. Um, why is it? These are maybe some obvious things, but let me just ask the questions first, especially for younger audience. Like, how much of this is just that Wilt is just bigger and stronger than everybody else around him? How much is about the fact that the, the lane itself is narrower than so he can he can post up pretty close to the basket? And what do we know about pace and possessions? at that time because if there were a lot more possessions a game just going up and down maybe that feeds into this too like we are in the advanced stats era so it's the natural curiosity so there's a lot of questions you're asking there um, <laughs> you know what what we know for the young people what they should know is that yes Wilt was that much better than the other players particularly on this night now, the Knicks had two six-foot, 10-inch centers. One was a rookie, Daryl Imhoff, who'd won a gold medal at my alma mater, Cal Berkeley, uh, uh, and then went and played for the U.S. Olympic team in the Rome Olympics. He won a national championship at Cal and a gold medal. But he fouls out after 20 minutes that night. He commits six fouls covering Wilt in 20 minutes. And Daryl told me, he said, you know, he said to the referee, why don't you just give him 100 points now? Um, well, okay, the Knicks still have another six foot 10 inch center, Phil Jordan, but Phil is not on the bench. Phil is not in the arena. Phil is back at the Hotel Penn Harris, 13 miles away in Harrisburg, the state capital, vomiting away because he was out on a late night bender the <laughs> night before. So that means for 28 of the 48 minutes of that game, Wilt is covered by the tallest player on the Knicks six foot eight inch rookie Cleveland Buckner. Well, Cleveland Buckner only played that season. He was very thin, hardly could muscle up with Wilt. And so the Knicks, you know, build a box around Wilt. They've, they're clinging to the one and the three on his jersey. They're pulling on him, they're elbowing. I asked Daryl Imhoff, who has since passed away, sadly. I said, Daryl, can you show me how you covered Wilt? And we were in uh, Eugene, Oregon at the US Basketball Academy. So he took me down low to a vacant court and there was no box then, what we call down at the, the box, but Wilt would, would plan himself there. Now, Howard, to your point, 
the lane was only 12 feet wide. Today, it's four feet wider, 16 feet. And that's because of wilt. But if he could be right outside the lane down low and he gets the ball, he can take one huge wilt size step, a lunge really, and be at the basket and dunk it. And that's why they widened it. But that's a huge advantage, particularly on a night when the Knicks don't have anyone taller than six, eight. Um, but, but, you know, this was this, I think what young people need to know is that Wilt was that good. What young people need to know is that if, if you ask which of these players could you transport across time to today, who would, who would hold up? Oh yeah. Wilt Chamberlain, not even a doubt. Wilt would do just fine. Would he average 50 points a game? He would not. And that's because the, the, the way the game has evolved and players have evolved. Yes. I mean, the game is yeah. so much better now. The athleticism is, is um, outrageous almost. Right. And, uh, and yet Wilt was a superior athlete. I would go so far to say is that if you judge athleticism, pure athleticism as a combination of size, speed, strength, and agility, then that Wilt in Hershey, 25 years old, 7'1", 260 pounds, ran the floor so well, a decathlete. Um, he might have been the greatest pure athlete of the 20th century. And if not, he's at least in that conversation. I think young people need to know that. Sarah, what leapt out for you in doing all the research and having access to all the, the wonderful NBA archives, the the audio, which I'm sure you both got to listen to of that. It was just the fourth quarter, unfortunately, of, of that game. Anything, Sarah, that... that uh, was the the you know biggest revelation in working on this project? Uh, there was a lot of them. I think I'll I'll circle back to just me loving and digging into the concept of how Wilt played. And I think for as much as we know about him or know about his numbers, I mean, even him leading the league in assists one year, things like that. I mean, there are so many things that jump out that I didn't have a full understanding of, and just uh, the sheer amount of of skill that you start to see and feel when you bring up some of that sound. I mean, it's, it's amazing to listen to him and listen to him talk. The other things I loved, and I know Gary could speak to this because he told a lot of the stories, what my perception of Wilt was and is, or you think about is this larger than life character. So not only what he did on the basketball court, but the stories you hear about him and uh, Gary telling a story about him and telling Cal Ramsey that he fought off a mountain lion and, you know, stuff, <laughs> stuff like that and, and just how that went about. But I think there's so many different stories. The fact that he um, owned a nightclub in, in Harlem and, um, you know, thinking about being, what was he, 25, Gary, at that point? And, what? Uh, you know, just uh, stuff like that, that you circle back to just the not just the concept of who he was as a player, but who he was as a person and um, maybe how much of that it stretches the bounds of um, true accuracy and maybe a little bit of embellishment. But to me, that is all a part of this person that we think of as larger than life. I keep trying to think sir, of. Sir, I was going to say, sir, that podcast you, you did was really terrific. I mean, I well, you, you, Gary, that's that's the 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 good okay, stuff. Okay, sir, you I, I was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> I was like Gary. Gary, we got to have people come listen because you were the terrific one telling all these stories. But but that's it because I think we know pieces of it, and that's what yeah. I mean. Those. Um, those of us who love basketball have have nuances and small details of things that we kind of know. But then when you deep dive into the stories, it's um, it, it is just so insightful to think about and to hear. 
it, it's uh, we always talk about, you know, could anybody else do it? But it's tempting to now start thinking about um, who we could send back in time to try to prevent it. Right. Like, could Giannis have stood up to Wilt? Could uh, Rudy Gobert have stood up to Wilt? Could Joel Embiid have stood up like who, you know, if we now have bigger, stronger athletes in, in the 21st century, um, it's tempting to start thinking about who might have put up some resistance to, to prevent the 100. But that's no fun. I love the 100. Um so before we go, it's like a couple quick statistical markers here just to note this for, for folks. There's only been 11 games of even over 70 points in NBA history, and six of those were by Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, Kobe obviously had the 81 in 2006. That's the closest to the 100. Devin Booker's 70 in 2017 was the most recent that anybody's even hit 70. Uh, and yet we are in the three-point era, a three-point heavy era, getting heavier every season. And it still feels completely out of reach. Um, so let me put it to you both before we close. Uh, Sarah, I'll hit you first because I know you, you got a, a hard out in a few minutes here. If anybody ever approaches it, forget the 100 even. If anybody's even going to get to 80 or 90 to even make it interesting, to have a night where in this era, we will just all be gathered around League Pass and Twitter and giggling on our couches seeing this unfold. Who is it? Who's actually making it a conversation? Uh, I'm going to be a little biased because I watch him every night, but I think Kevin Durant might be an individual that could do that. And the other I would point to would be Devin Booker. I, you know, those are the two to me that stand out um, in how they score, the ease of which they score in the multiple ways they score free throw line, get into the basket, mid range game, three point shot, and a heavy dose of a three point shot. So those, those would be the two that I would immediately point to. However, I don't think it'll be done again. I, I, I think that's a marker. Um, I think that's a marker that that may stay on its own, uh, if not if if not forever for quite some time. Gary, anybody uh, in the modern game who's at least going to make it interesting one night? Well, I figure if it happens, it's going to happen in the NBA All Star Game, and the final score will be two hundred and fifty six to two hundred. Oh, nice. <laughs> and maybe two or three guys will score a hundred. <laughs> I don't know, but. Um, you know, that's a lot of points and so many things have to come into being. It's got to be this confluence of, of, of a shooter's night like Kobe when he scores 81 has one of those shooters nights. Same, so too with Devin Booker. I've always believed that if it happens, you know, Kevin Mod uh, Durant fits the model. He, you know, a, a, a tall guy who can shoot threes and free throws. He gets into a shooter's night and all things are possible. But a hundred you know, Howard, the only thing that's more impressive than that to me that I know won't be reached anytime soon, maybe ever, is that season will averaged 48 and a half minutes a game. <laughs> the games are only 48 awesome. minutes. So there was a triple overtime game and other yeah. games. He only missed eight minutes and 33 seconds yeah. that season when he got thrown out of a game by the referee, Norm Drucker, for arguing. But when you think about time management nowadays, not only does that make, you know, 100 points less likely, Certainly nobody's going to get to 48 and a half minute per game average over the course of the season. Yeah. And I don't think a hundred will ever be reached. I don't want it to ever be reached. It's just such an amazing achievement and this hallowed record. It's got this mystique shrouding it that I don't ever want to, to be chipped away at. Um, I do like the idea of someone just trying one night. Someone's on a hot streak. Maybe it's Steph on, on, a, on a three point binge or clay. Uh, maybe it's Kevin Durant. Uh, maybe it's Joel Embiid on a night that he just fouls out half of another team's roster or something. 
I just like the idea of someone just going for it and, and you know, flirting with 80 at least. You know, 100 doesn't have to be reached. Um, it, we just need somebody else to kind of, you know, just to have the, the audacity to try um, in, a, in a game that, you know, that caters to it. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if we're ever, ever going to see a Kobe 81 again anytime soon. Well, it's like Kobe's been to the moon and Wilt made it to Mars, right? I mean, there's a big, there's a big difference between 81 and 100. I love that. Uh, all right, folks, if you want to hear a lot more insight into this, go check out the NBA flashback pod that Sarah Kustak hosts and that Gary Pomerantz uh, was a, a featured voice on uh, for that particular chapter. And there's all kinds of other great NBA history to find there as well. Um, and go check out Gary's uh, book, Wilt 1962. Uh, Gary, Sarah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and thank you guys for doing the podcast and not just this podcast, but the flashback podcast in the first place, because I, I learned a ton. This was a lot of fun. Sarah, Howard, thank you so much. I enjoyed both of the uh, podcasts and uh, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Likewise. Thanks to both of you. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80 live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.